Well, tonight, as Sandra said, we're looking at the, the final commandment of the Ten Commandments. We've worked our way through all ten, and uh, of course it would happen. Wouldn't it? Just when I thought I'd kind of got a hold of what was happening in the commandments, uh, going into this last one, I found it the, really in a way the most difficult of all, the most difficult to really get my head around and to understand properly. You know, that kind of experience you get when you, you're doing something. It's that last little bit that that kind of you, you, you stick at, well, it's a bit like that, but when I, I looked a bit more and thought about it a bit more, it's not so surprising that I found this most difficult, because here in this commandment, things really do, in this last commandment, things move on to a, a different kind of level. Because, you see, all the other commandments, in the main, have been about actions. They've been about things that we do or things that we shouldn't do. This commandment here, though, is more about attitude. It's about what's going on in our heart and mind that then leads us to do the things that we do, leads us to live the way that we live. And and in that kind of sense, it's really a link to Jesus' deepening of the the Ten Commandments that we we find in this Sermon on the Mount. For example, in in Matthew 5.27, where Jesus said, you have heard it said that, you know, do not commit adultery. But he said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But, you know, let me tell you that whenever you get into attitudes, whenever you dig a bit deeper and you get into what's going on in human hearts and minds, well, you really do get yourself into tricky territory. But we're not going to give up, so we're going to begin tonight then first by looking at covetousness, looking at the situation. And the situation basically is that covetousness, that insatiable desire for more, is ingrained into the fabric of our society. I mean, one of the the most commonly and widely accepted definitions of the society we live in today is that we are a consumer society. Well, let me say to you, a consumer society cannot exist without covetousness, without provoking covetousness. Look all around you. you know, I was in London a couple of weeks ago and you got them down the tube and it's advertising that's screaming out at you. You see it so clearly, just a few feet from your eyes, everywhere you go, screaming at you from every corner and it's all geared to make us want more and more of things that so often we don't actually really need in the first place. Now, some examples of covetousness in our society can be in a way funny in a a sad kind of sense. For instance, the, the Times newspaper a few years ago reported when she was going through a difficult time that, um, Sarah Ferguson, Prince Andrew's former wife, that she, under the guidance of so-called New Age gurus, was instructed to help her to repeat the mantra, no, more, no fewer sorry, than 22 times a day, that money now comes to me in abundance, in perfect ways. I don't know why I'm laughing. I'll tell you why I'm laughing, because I remember once I was driving around and was that guy used to be on the radio, Scotty McHugh, and he always used to do kind of you know, provoking kind of stuff. And I remember one time when um, Fergie was, a, you know, she was in bankrupt, supposed to be, and he put on the radio, you know, this kind of 
discussion. He, he announced to the nation that he was going to have an appeal and that he wanted everybody in the nation to give her a fiver because the poor lassie was a wee bit skint. And the brilliant thing was all these folk phoning in saying, I'm not going to give her a fiver, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, it's all around us. But covetousness, mostly, isn't funny. It's not funny at all. And I think what's maybe really most disturbing is the way that that children more and more in, in the world that we live in are being targeted. For example, Christmas wasn't that, that long ago, and we all know, don't we, that every Christmas there's always going to be some toy that's going to be hyped up as a, a must-have. And then, funnily enough, it always seems to be in short supply and even more overpriced than all the other toys. And it's the, the one toy we're told that every child has to have this Christmas to really have had a Christmas, with the inference being that the parent who doesn't buy their child this toy doesn't really love them. And the child who doesn't get that toy is encouraged to feel that they aren't really loved. After all, Hollywood's actually even made a film about that. It was absolute rubbish with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. But anyway, if this isn't the, but that isn't the end of the kind of Hollywood involvement. For you know, it's a, it's a fact that an increasing number of films are being made today with a view to the real profit from that film being made, not from the box office, not by ticket sales, but by the sale of the associated merchandise. So really, when you get right down to it, there are films being made today, a number of them with multi, multi-million pound budgets that are really just elaborate 90-minute commercials. Now, we could go on here to talk about the way that, that different kinds of of coveting the way that these are promoted in our society. But let me just concentrate just for a a few minutes on one example of coveting, promotion of coveting, that's been given the official government stamp of approval. When this was brought in and made legal in our country, the government might as well have said, greed is okay. In fact, more than that, Let's go ahead and celebrate it. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the National Lottery. I want to say to you that the day that this began, sponsored by the government, well, it was almost, it was a physical statement of how far as a nation we've wandered from God, of how little godly and biblical standards now matter in this land. Rob Warner, writing about this, once said, he said that every Saturday night, the lottery program is a national orgy of covetousness, legitimizing and provoking an obsessive lust for vast, unearned wealth. Happily, things have slightly improved because I think the draw thing has been moved to iPlayer. But you know, Mrs. Thatcher, and I'm definitely not a fan, but to her credit, During her time in power, she opposed vehemently the idea of a lottery because she thought, and I agree, that the government of the land should not encourage gambling. But since her time, I think we would have to say that every single government since, of whatever shade, of whatever variety, has embraced gambling at a national level on an industrial scale. 
to the fact that Tibor Borsoni, who's part of some Canadian uh, foundation that opposes government, he opposes government, probably opposes government as well, but he said, he said that governments should go to Gamblers Anonymous. They have become addicted to gambling. Of course, they have the reasons politicians usually do. They have the reasons. Because you see, the facts are that the lottery is really a disguised tax. That's what it is. Because while there are lots of great things that undoubtedly are sponsored by the lottery, and certainly it's helped to transform Britain's performance at the Olympics, yet, you know, many of these things should be paid for and once were paid for by direct taxation. And yet at the same time, the government that's in power tends to use lottery projects as vote winners. For while they aren't actually involved in making the decisions about how the money's spent, yet watch and see, I'm sure you've seen it many times, whenever a big glamorous lottery project is announced or is opened, there's always a government minister right at the front of any photo opportunity. You know, it's amazing, actually, when you, when you really actually think about it. A disguised tax used as a vote winner. They take money off people, and then when they use the money that they've been given, they then say, look how good we are to you. Jeffrey Archer, oh, how we remember him, once but no longer the darling of the Tory party. At one time, he advised... He said that every Tory MP should have in his or her pocket a list of lottery finance projects in their constituency and that they should constantly talk about its positive impact. But you know, what I find most reprehensible about the lottery and the way that by it, gambling and covetousness have been woven right into the fabric of our society. The thing I find most reprehensible is the fact that its greatest impact has been on the poor, been on the desperate, the vulnerable, and the gullible. Because it is a fact, it's a fact, that the greatest lottery sales are among the poorest section of the population. You see that the comparatively well-off, maybe, I don't know if they do any longer, but maybe buy a lottery ticket for a bit of a laugh on a Saturday. The poor, though, so often spend money that they cannot afford on a desperate attempt to find an escape route from the lives they're living. But you see, the statistical facts are, and you know, you can learn amazing things when you begin to look at statistics. For instance, while I was doing a wee bit of research for tonight, I found out, this is interesting, that annually... Worldwide, more people are killed by donkeys than as a result of plane crashes. So you think about that. You are more in danger when you're at Blackpool Beach than you used to be than when you're sitting on an aeroplane ready for takeoff. That's something to calm you down a bit. But the relevant statistical fact here, though, is that you've got a far better chance of being run down on the way to buy a lottery ticket than you have of actually winning the lottery. In fact, I once heard the lottery described, and I love this, as a tax on those who are bad at maths. But do you know what all of this has produced, all the hype, etc.? 
What this has actually produced among the most vulnerable sector of society, what some doctors apparently now call post-lottery syndrome. And that whenever there's a a well-publicized, huge lottery win, there follows in some areas of the country, deprived areas of the country, a significant rise in depression and in abuse of various kinds, alcohol, drug, domestic, etc. But that's the situation, I believe, regarding covetousness. It's now been given official government sanction. It's now become ingrained into our society and our national life. And it's picking apart the moral, emotional, and even the physical fabric of our nation. Well, let's move on then to look at covetousness, to look at the problem. What is the problem then? And what actually do we really mean When we talk about covetousness, something we must know if we're going to be able to understand it and be able to deal with it. To begin then, the root meaning that lies behind the biblical word that we translate into English as covetousness is desire. That's the the, the, the root of it. Now you see, there are good desires. We've got certain inbuilt, God-given desires For example, the desire to earn money, the desire to produce goods so that we can care for our families and so that we can support ourselves. That's a good thing. That's a good desire. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And here also, I think it's important not to get confused in our thinking. It's important not to add two and two together and come to five. In the sense of of coming to the conclusion that the opposite of covetousness is poverty. That is that covetousness, so therefore by association with that, all material things are evil. And that to be really good, to be really virtuous, well, poverty is the way to be poor. That's the way to go as a Christian. Well, I don't believe this is so. For while there can be times when God calls maybe some Christians to poverty, and while the poor do seem to have a special place in the heart of God, yet poverty is not in itself a virtue, not as the Bible sees it. Nor does poverty... Being poor in some way frees from the sin of covetousness. To the contrary, in a typically kind of cruel way, poverty often seems to increase our capacity to sin like this. Now, the opposite of, po- of covetousness isn't poverty. And the answer to desire isn't to try to deny our desires. But rather, it's to make sure that our desires are channeled in the right way. And also, it's by making sure that we act as stewards. Stewards under God's sovereign rule of all that's been given us. Let me just share with you two quotes uh, from a writer by the name of Dallas Willard that will maybe help to clarify what what I've just tried to say and maybe your own thinking along the line. This is what he says. First, he says, we can trust and serve wealth 
without either possessing it or using it. Those poor people whose faith is in riches that they can neither own nor can use are among the most happy people on earth. And second, he says, freedom from possessions is not so much an outward thing as an inward one. To abandon the goods of this world to the enemies of God is to fail in the responsibilities we are given in creation to be stewards and have dominion. That was maybe a little bit of a detour, but it was because I wanted you to understand clearly, because this is so often misunderstood, that while covetousness is about desire, yet not all desire is wrong. No, rather where desire goes wrong is when we desire the wrong things or when we desire the right things, but in the wrong way. When we desire what doesn't belong to us, that's covetousness. Be it another man's husband or wife or personal property, whatever. And when we are ready to do whatever it takes to get the objects of our desires, whether that involves using other people, trampling over people, exploiting them in whatever way we have to, well, that just compounds our sin. And of course, the the classic biblical example of this maybe is, is that of David and of his desire for Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's the second time I've mentioned Uriah, the, word, the name Uriah today. That must be a record. But anyway, we know the story. David coveted her. He coveted the wife of another man. Now David knew what all the commandments said about adultery and he knew what it said about coveting. But you see, at this point in his life, David wasn't living in relationship with God. So he wasn't prepared then to turn to God. He wasn't prepared to submit to God. He wasn't prepared to ask for God's strength to put this illegitimate desire to death. No, instead, David sought to use all his power and influence to attain the object of his desires. So he cheated and he lied. He basically had Uriah, an innocent and honorable man, put to death. And so David got Bathsheba. He got what he desired. But did that make him happy? No, because before long, he was forced to see the enormity of what he had done. And before long, he realized how he had offended God. And he was broken before God. He was broken in repentance before his God. But you know, despite his repentance and God's forgiveness, because God did forgive him, David still had to live with the consequences of his sin. And his coveting of Bathsheba and the actions that led from that led to disaster after disaster in his life from that point on. Also, as well as that, when we desire to excess money or goods, food or alcohol, whatever that might be, and whenever we're prepared to do whatever it takes to get what we want, well, again, you see, that's coveting with all sorts of other sins that will lead to hurt and damage to others and to ourselves set to follow in a chain right on from that when we give in to that desire's. And when we desire what we cannot have, 
And we let that desire become anger and bitterness because we cannot have that and it eats away at us. That's coveting. Even when what we want is maybe legitimate in itself. Yet, if we let the desire for that thing consume us, then that's wrong. That is coveting. And that will eat away and destroy us from within. I don't know if you've got a hold of what coveting is yet. It's about desire. But it's about desire out of control. It's about desire, but it's about desire that's not good, but bad, that's been twisted and perverted by sin. But maybe you're wondering, though, particularly those of us who are Christians, those of us here tonight who have a personal relationship by faith with God, you know, where does it all go wrong? What sets all of this into motion? And how can a sin like this get its grip again back in our lives? How can it get a foothold back in our life? Well, let me just share with you a quote I found from the Dictionary of New Testament Theology that I think brings together a lot of what we've said with just an extra added little bit of information. This is it. It says, Where the bond between creature and creator is severed, human society falls into disorder. The man who no longer has his goal and fulfillment in God then seeks fulfillment in himself, his possessions, and acquisitiveness. Ultimately, he makes himself into an idol that strives to subject everything to itself. And for that reason, Colossians 3 verse 5 identifies covetousness with idolatry. Now, do you get what's been said there? What's been said is that what sets covetousness in motion lies in what's going in in our hearts. It lies in who or what we're putting our trust in. It lies in who actually is Lord, who actually is first in our lives. So are we putting our trust in God? Or is our real trust in things or in people? What are we relying on to bring us fulfillment, to fill us with joy, to give us peace? What are we relying on? The God who is Lord of our lives, who's first in our lives? Or are we looking to created things to give us what God alone can? Is it the living God? Is it the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe? Or have we actually put ourselves center stage in our own little universe? Well, that's the problem. That's the issue. That's what it's all about. Let's just finish then by looking at covetousness, the solution. And you know, I believe that the beginning of the solution here in our lives personally actually lies in take a re- taking a real honest inventory of ourselves, really looking at ourselves to see if this sin of covetousness, this kind of sin of self-idolatry has actually got a grip on our hearts and minds. So for example, do we use the words I, me, and mine too often? Like a little child, a toddler, Do we live as if the world revolves around us? As if we're the most important thing in our own little world? 
Is it our desires, our wants, that are our first thought and our first priority? Are we greedy for possession, possessions? Is our ego so fragile that we've got to have more and more? We've got to have the best and be seen to have the best, be thought of as the best before we can feel happy about ourselves. Is that where we find our fulfillment? Now, once we've, we've done that kind of inventory or something like it, and maybe we're convicted of this sin of covetousness or at least we're maybe concerned that something we think, well, maybe, maybe that's there. Then there's only one thing that's left to do. And that is we've got to get back into right relationship with God. We've got to bow the knee to God. We've got to again turn to Him and again put our trust in Him. We've got to say, Lord, forgive me for what I've been doing. Forgive me for the way that I've been duped once again by the evil one. Forgive me for how I've been won back into living and help me again in my life to actually put you first. Help me to put my trust in you. Help me day by day to live for you and your glory. And help me, not just to say it, help me to show it in my life. Help me to show it by the way I steward and use my possessions, by the way that I use them first for your glory and not mine. Help me by the way that I live with you really as Lord Help me to bring glory to your name. And you know, it's living in this way that actually brings real peace and real joy into our hearts. It's living in this way that satisfies our soul in a way that all the short-term thrills and pleasures that this world and its possessions can never bring that so many foolishly live for today. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, said something wonderful. This is what he said. I love this verse. He said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And do you know something? Paul didn't just say this. He lived it. He lived it. For this is what he went on to say when in Philippians 4, when he was there in chains and in prison, facing possible death. This is what he said. Verse 11. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. You know, whatever's going on around me. I know what it's like to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. And you see, Paul could say that. And Paul could know that. And Paul could live that. Because Paul's main concern wasn't about his circumstances. wasn't about whether he had plenty or little. If he had plenty... He praised God and he used it for his glory. If he had little, he turned to God and just put his trust in him. But no, Paul's main concern in life was to live a life 
that was centered on God, where God was king and where his glory shone through. Paul's main concern was to live a life in true relationship with God, with God as his Lord. Because you see, Paul knew that if he lived in this way, that it's then his life would truly be complete. He knew that if he lived in this way, he would find what all the other peoples in this world search for in vain. He would find the true contentment, the true joy, the true peace that God alone can bring. I want to say tonight, may each one of us learn to live our lives with that same kind of focus. And because we're living that way, may we know lives of a true and a godly contempt. Let's just come and pray. Father, we live today in a society that really is about covetousness. It says that not just that covetousness is okay, but if we don't covet, if we don't want more and more, that there's something wrong with us, that there's something missing. But Father, we We know that what's really missing is a life that's focused on you as Lord, living for you as Lord, seeing all that we have is given from you and using all that we have to bring glory to you. Father, help us to see that true contentment in life begins with you truly as Lord enthroned in our hearts, day by day, living for you. Father, may we be a people here who live for the glory of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.